Welcome to episode 144 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. How are you? Hello, Ben. I'm doing well. I don't think we have Jersey Janovitz on, on with us during this show, uh, which is unfortunate, I guess, because that was fun. But we do have results and stuff. And Or do you want Jersey back? We can try, see if he's on. I, I, I think that most people enjoyed our Twitch commentary i'm sure that jersey's on there it's not like he's got anything better to do right now but i do hope that his counter strike skills improve because i'm still completely uh uh, traumatized (laughs) from the experience of watching him employ such just tragic military tactics can i segue real quick to the meat of the show here because i feel like you gave me a huge opening go for it speaking of tragic tactics courtney what was it like for you watching Rafael Nadal this week? Oh, my God. First of all, it's not fair that you even, like, lead with this because we've just had, come off of a 30 to 45-minute offline conversation wherein I compared Rafa to so many different things, and none of them was particularly positive. No. Um, Boy, yes. As promised after last week, because I didn't see much of the Rafael Nadal-Dominic team match in uh, Buenos Aires. Yeah. In Buenos Aires. Um, So, as promised, I did pay more attention to Rafael Nadal this week in Rio, and man, I did not like what I saw. That was was tragic. What did you see? I just... I saw some... Okay, this sounds really weird, but I saw saw a, a very human tennis player. And I'm not used to seeing that from Rafa. And I don't mean that in terms of personality and all these sorts of things. Obviously, what has made Rafa so popular and and what has been part of his whole ethos and, you know, myth around him has been his kind of salt of the earthy, like, I work super hard and I drip sweat and I'm, you know, I am a man playing this tennis game. But he's also been kind of deified in different ways, simply because he plays a type of game that we've never seen before and um obviously his results speak to that and i'm just kind of used to rafa just being evolved past the rest of the field like for him to to occupy that rare air along with with novak and and roger and what i saw in in rio which was echoing a little bit what i saw in the final of doha which was the first time that i watched rafa this year as well as obviously his match against Ferdasco was just a very human tennis player a very ordinary one that was that was jarring that was a tough thing to to, to, to process i think i'm still processing it i mean yeah absolutely I, I said a lot of this same sort of thing on the podcast last week and i'd seen that match against team and rafa is in a part of the schedule and maybe we're over i mean it's february but rafa's in a part of the schedule where he used to go just like run up the score <laughs> you know he used to go to South American clay because it was the lowest hanging fruit available for him. So to see him fail to make finals in two tournaments and really not have any good wins. And I realize he lost close matches in both his losses to Cuevas and team who are both, you know, capable, serviceable professional players on clay, especially, but just the way he's playing, like you said, yeah, he looks so mortal and all the things that he did that made him so good. His athleticism, his strength, his tenacity, Maybe the tenacity is still there on some mental level. I mean, he's not like not trying to play tennis anymore, but just the execution is really, really bad. And it, with it coming with more and more frequency, 
Courtney. I mean, obviously there was a lot of panic about Rafa. Last year he came close to falling out of the top 10 at one point uh, early in the year with a lot of points coming off, lost at the court of the French Open after having won the French Open, you know, all but one other year before that. Didn't win a major, didn't win a Masters on clay, I don't think. Nope. Yeah, double checking. Nope, he didn't do that. So there was some panic before, but this this feels, I don't know, more permanent, more final somehow, even though it's early going. Is that, do you share that feeling? Well, I mean, I, I, I do uh, definitely more than if people remember me during the summer of last year, I was in, I was pretty protective of Rafa. Yeah, you're um, pretty, you, were, you were very glass half full compared to most people on Rafa. I was. I was kind of like, you know, just let's wait and see. Yes, he's not playing great, but we've got to give him some time. He's obviously coming off of, of injuries and, you know, some frustrations here and there. I mean, at the French Open, obviously, a, a surprising loss on, not loss, but a disappointing result on paper because it's a loss in the quarterfinals, but he lost to, to Novak. And I think that now we can basically say losing to Novak is no shame. No. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of context with respect to to his results um, during the summer of last year. So I was like, eh, everybody chill out. Now it's it's tough. You know, he's 0-4 this year against top 50 players. Let's ooh, try and figure that ooh, one out. That's a dark stat. That's a dark stat. Top 0-4 with losses to Novak, obviously, again, no big deal except for the way that he lost. That was a shellacking. Yeah, pummeling, it was a statement. Yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a pummeling. Uh, then... Uh, Fernando Verdasco at the Australian Open and then Dominic Team and then um or not team last week, but I can't remember. No, it was team last week. Yeah, it was team last week. Um and then Cuevas. So I, those are obviously surprising results. Then plus on top of that, you're talking about losses to team and to Cuevas on clay. Obviously clay is great for them, but again, surprising that's not what you expect from Rafa. You know, one handed backhanders. He thought he's lost to one handed backhanders back to back weeks on clay. That seems weird. That used to be his absolute bread and butter. Yeah. Know, he would wood, throw those guys into the wood chipper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so this is, you know, they're just little things where you're like, what's going on here? And then on top of that, these are, as you mentioned before, tight matches. The, not the Novak one, but obviously the loss to Verdasco in five. Um, and obviously Verdasco treed that day with the whatever, his 99 uh, winners or something. Um, and then team in three sets and Cuevas in three sets. But again... I guess, you know, I'll talk myself down off the ledge a little bit and I will say, okay, in those situations, you're looking at tight matches. He's putting himself in that position. He's not closing. He's not, you know, a few points go here or there. And we're talking about probably a Rafa that's, that's you know, gets through those matches. He just couldn't. But it's still a worrying trend. And I'm definitely more worried now about the state of Rafa than I was, you know, nine months ago. Yeah, and I think I to push back on your pushback. I think that <laughs> I think that you know, top players shouldn't be in close matches with Pablo Cuevas. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's. I understand that he's a decent player and a top 30, 40 player for the last few years. And put and pushed Rafa last year as well uh, in Rio in, in another three setter. So right, but I agree with you. That's. <laughs> It's insulting to Rafa to think that, like, oh, no, I think Cuevas has got a shot against Rafa. No, that's that's right. not a thing that you and say. So that's ever. what we're saying. When, when Obviously, when we're going big on, you know, criticizing, quote-unquote, Rafa for making two back-to-back semifinals in these two weeks doesn't sound awful. But he set the bar at a place where that's his reality. You know, he won f- ten, nine French Opens and 14 Grand Slams. He gets graded differently. It's just He is reality. the king of clay. He's the king of clay, and he's not— playing very royal tennis that oh and four against top 50 that is a that is a stat i had not seen that one that's and he's so which means that all of his wins more or less have been kind of worthless i mean i know that his doha wins were all against complete nobodies pretty much 
And I guess his wins in South America, I know he beat Carreño Busta, he beat Almagro in Spaniards, you know, he's just well against, yeah, all of it is to say, I think there's a lot of, I think it's an important uh, few months for him coming up. Uh, he's, you know, obviously with his body, he's not getting any younger. It's got to be bad for morale. Uncle Tony coaching questions probably rear up again. It, it's just, it can't be a, a positive time for him coming into a year. But maybe he thought, you know, this wasn't a year where he was necessarily going to have a lot of spotlight on him per se, because, you know, Novak is going to be so far ahead of the field. Like if Rafa had won both Buenos Aires and Rio, I don't think people would have gone too nuts about it. Um, it'd be, okay, Rafa, you know, hold serve. That's all that happens by him winning a South American clay court tournament. Um, but now I think this worrying play probably gets him on the radar and on our radar leading the show more than he probably wants to be. So we'll see how he responds to that. I agree. And and here's a, a secondary question that I will ask you, Ben, before we move on is when you look at the ATP at the moment, obviously you have Rafa who is struggling. Uh, Roger's gone under the knife for that arthroscopic knee surgery after the Australian open, which we actually uh, haven't talked about on the show. Yeah, yet, exactly. Which is why I'm bringing, which is why I'm yeah. bringing it up a little bit. Uh, you got, I don't know, Stan losing to Benoit Pair uh, last week and Andy Murray kind of being a dad. But are we, you know, as we're about to kind of transition into, you know, the two Masters events in North America with the Wells in Miami, what's up with the ATP right now? Like what is what is kind of the landscape look like for you um, with respect to the top guys? I mean, because the results have been surprising. Let's not pretend that they haven't been obviously outside of Novak winning the the Australian Open the two other bigger biggest titles of the year were won by what Cuevas and Cleason yeah. is that right yeah that's correct yeah the two ATP 500s so see you guys I pay attention to the ATP don't think that I don't I I see you boys I see you but anyways um but what's what's your sense I mean it's is is there are we are we in for some wonky results Novak aside for the next like you know month and a half or so I mean, to play in broad stereotypes, it seems like ATP is going a little bit WTA. Don't even! Oh. It has to be said. It's the oh. only way to phrase it. It's true. <laughs> like, there's one dominant... This is, you know, good WTA. This is like... I'm not even... I ain't, I ain't even mad. I ain't no. even mad. And it's it's for... If you're a fan who just likes tennis, it's fun because you go into tournaments not knowing who's going to win. You get... Matches are no longer in the bag. Like, it wasn't honestly that fun at least for a lot of people for me sometimes included watching Nadal on clay because you knew he's going to win every single match and so kind of what was the point now you go into a tournament like a Rio and you don't know who's going to win and unless you're a Rafa fan that's probably more interesting on some level it has to be having uncertainty in sports is kind of the whole point Novak is there to hoover up everything uh all of this is setting up incredibly well for Novak really Novak has been a big winner in February, having not barely played. And yeah, with, with Federer going out, I think definitely hurts Federer. Federer's never really had, definitely hadn't had mid-career surgery before. I'm not sure how devastating this will be. It's a relatively minor injury. Um, I mean, players come back from this fairly quickly with no problems most of the time. He's a little older, but so be it. With all his graceful movement and stuff, should, I expect him to be relatively you know, back in full stride, whatever, by... April, the latest. He's still on the schedule for playing Indian Wells. I wouldn't be shocked if he pulled out, but uh, I would hope he would. Did they? And did they ever clear up that Miami thing with him? Because he wasn't originally entered in Miami, but then he was on the list. No, I don't think. I think I couldn't tell if that was a list 
was an auto-generation, you know, thing. Just all the players could automatically enter. But I don't think that happens with him. It hasn't happened in past years. So maybe maybe he just entered thinking that if he wanted to take a wild card, he just wouldn't – Would why not just enter? I don't know. Um, so I guess. But, we'll that, I mean, he specifically said he wasn't playing it. So it, it's, it was peculiar. He said that before this injury, though, right? About yes. Playing. Okay, maybe that yes. changes things, though. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It just seems weird because it's like, if you're Roger Federer, you know you're going to get a wild card no matter when you ask for it. So, <laughs> like, but anyways, but yeah, okay. No, so so all that's all that is to say this is setting up incredibly well for Djokovic and incredibly well for people who like unpredictability elsewhere. I mean, I think Murray Murray's had a totally fine start to 2016. Yep. It's looking like a very solid number two, number three type player. Stan's been solidly top five-ish as well, and I think Roger pretty much has been too, as had this injury. Uh, so and maybe with, you know, maybe with Ronich already having that great start to the year, maybe he's just slotting into that range already and it's not that much upheaval, but it just seems like there's a, there's going to be a, the gap is not closing is the news and it's getting wider if anything. And Nadal, I mean, I will say right now with how he's playing, I can't, it would take a massive turnaround for Nadal to be a French open champion this year or even a major contender. He's got a lot of long way to climb back. From where he is right now he can do it if anybody can he can as we say he's not one to be counted out but he's starting way back of the the peloton right now i would i would agree with that so speaking of people who are out of the peloton i guess there's usually like 20 people in the peloton maybe i'm not really good at cycling but let's go with that for sake of this transition caroline wozniacki is outside the top 20 according to this week for the first time since 2008 august 2008 which is when she was baby woes, teenager breaking in. What, where do you, what do you make of her? Because she's had a sort of under the radar. We talked about her some last year, but go, I guess if you can just sort of walk through the last 16 months of her, maybe since like the U.S. Open final she made in 2014 to where, yeah. where because that was, everything was coming up huge for her. She was getting back towards top five. I think she maybe got back into top five at some point. Where did it all go wrong for Caroline? And what's what's next for, for her besides body paint? <laughs> I I think that the questions surrounding kind of what happened with her are are still a bit unanswered. I you know you think about a player who, you know, at the end of that year uh, in 2014, obviously a very uh, eventful one uh, for Caroline uh, on personal and professional level. Um, you know, but when that season ended, especially on you know having pushed Serena once again to three sets in uh, Singapore, made us another. Uh, Grand Slam final at the U.S. Open, losing to to Serena. But basically, if not for Serena, possibly having an incredible resurgence in that second half of that season, um, really never backed it up. And I think that if you were to, you know, poll most tennis writers at the end of 2015 and ask who was the most disappointing uh, player of of the season, I think many, uh, I mean, at least anecdotally from people that I spoke to, most people were pointing at Caroline because, you know, both she and Ivanovich were two players who had a great resurgence in 2014 and just weren't really relevant at all last year. And obviously she's dealing with the effects of that now um, with, with dropping out of the top 20. And it's amazing to think though, I mean, like 2008, for some reason in my head, that doesn't seem that long ago, but then you calculate it out and you're like, that's like almost eight years ago. Eight years of solidly in the top 20. Solidly in the top 20, like never in doubt, except maybe a little bit last year, uh, not last year, two years ago, she was on the cusp around like 18 or 19, but she stayed in. Um, 
so but it but it's hard to say you know like what what exactly it is everyone has their theories um i personally i still think that that the marathon has some impact on it Yeah, i was gonna ask because that's if you have to point it's, to like what the timeline of it, she fell apart after the marathon. Yeah, I mean, and I've talked to a bunch of different people about it, and and a lot of people dismiss my my marathon theory. Most people are are kind of like, no, 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 like the marathon was actually really good for her. It got her into great shape, and you know things like that. I personally think that running that many miles in one day uh, is going to have an effect on your body long term, and I think that for for Caroline in particular, especially in tennis, because we don't have a long off season. Uh, to recover from things that, you know, this is a player who was so good for so long because of her physical resiliency that she didn't get injured really back in her peak days. And last year it was just like injury after injury was cropping up a wrist here, a knee here, a back there. Um, and those are, I mean, wrists aside, when you start talking about joints and you talk, start talking about a back injury or a hip injury, those are going to be particularly impacted areas when, when you are running long distances. Um, and so I think that, that that's a part of it, because I do think that one of the big things that we've seen with her lately that we didn't see early on uh, is is injury. And um, and so getting to the source of that, I think, is a big one. But just last year, I, I just don't think that the season maybe started right. And then she started playing a little bit more passively. And one of the big things in 2014 that she did in the second half was playing more aggressively. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know what 2015 looks like if, if Caroline Wozniacki is healthy. I think it looks very different, though. Yeah. She, I mean, she certainly had chances at the event Serena didn't play it. And maybe she wasn't going to beat Serena at a slam or anything, which was kind of the story of what you had to do in right. 2015 to be relevant. Although, I mean, 2016, gosh, losing. We didn't talk. I guess we talked about it some on our daily show that day. But the loss to Putin Seva in Melbourne this year was pretty dire. Well, and to Stevens in the semifinals in Auckland, a player that she had not lost a set to. Yeah prior to that match and it was a rain delayed match and it looked like you know maybe there was an opportunity there for caroline and she she really just kind of went away in this uh in that match against sloan and then yeah putin save that was just that was just a, a really poor performance there no offense to to yulia um and then opening round loss in st petersburg and then uh took nine match points to beat naomi uh, not naomi osaka uh, anakanyu uh, today in Doha, so and and really didn't play that great. So I don't know. It's it's a weird time. We got a question about Caroline today on email. You can always email us your questions at no challenges remaining at gmail dot com. We got this question from Ahmed Habab, who asks uh, who asks us to comment on Wozniacki's off court commitments and whether it is hampering her on court performance. Mentioning you know her pulling out of Dubai to do the SI event and then coming to Doha and struggling do you think that's fair i mean we talked recently about you know grigor dimitrov being the atp's answer to anna kornikova is caroline now in turn the wta dimitrov is that fair <laughs> oh my goodness um it's t- I, I don't know i genuinely don't i i think that it's not a good look optically uh i mean she looked great but like it's not a great look when when you know you go and and you click on a player who's slumping um and you click on their social media and every single post is not about tennis i mean that that's just like from an optics perspective that doesn't necessarily feed the uh the story that no 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 it's just bad luck and they're working really hard even if you are it's just it's just bad optics but I haven't spoken to Caroline since the Australian Open. I'm I'm always really hesitant to kind of opine until I actually get some kind of back and forth with the player to be like, dude, what's up? But like I said, it doesn't help. It doesn't help to see these sorts of 
that sort of stuff. But maybe, yeah. maybe I don't know. What what do you think about well, to it? Bring it? To bring it full circle, their other player who was stripping recently was Rafa, and it hasn't worked out for him either. <laughs> maybe I don't know. Maybe tennis is becoming very pure. The tennis gods are becoming very puritanical, and have it to sort of keep your clothes on message to our players. That's, that's not a message people probably want to think is being endorsed, but I don't know. I'm noticing a trend here. Maybe people start taking off their clothes when their career when they no longer have confidence in their other abilities. I don't know. I don't know. But it's uh, that's an interesting observation. I hadn't tied that into. So she, you're tying her into Rafa and you're tying her into to Grigor. That that's pretty rough. You know, I it's all. It, I'm very curious. It's one of those moments where again, I want to just hit like the time machine, but go forward uh, six months and see where where Caroline is. Um, just because it's tough. I, I just I don't know if it's just a matter of getting a few wins under her belt here. They're getting better draws. You know, maybe um, to get, you know, just some some easy ones. But uh, she's just not playing the way that she looked like she was on. She was well, she's definitely not playing the way that she was in 2000 at the end of 2014. No, which went one way so quickly. I'm like, I understand that she had that rough draw, a rough couple, a rough few draws early in 2015, played Vika quite a few times. Yeah. um, Which has never been hasn't been a great matchup for her lately. And that's tough, but like she just like totally got off the rails of what she's been doing, and she's done that so often in her career. Like we see what she can do when everything clicks in, and she seems to know. She seemed to know at that point in Singapore, like we were both there, that she was doing things right, and she that was something for her to maintain. And I don't know if it was just you know losing that feel or that mindset or just not being able to click back in, but totally astray to re to reunite these two things, these two themes again of Rafa and Caroline. The thing they both have in common is being coached by a member of their family. Do you think that both of them is that to, at all a factor in both their current struggles? This this un, and, it's, and and also not only the coach by the whole by the family that's been the situation their entire careers. I mean, Caroline's brought in consultants for short stretches at various times. Rafa hasn't really. Um, well, a couple times, like a serve consultant or something like that. But do you think that's to blame and? both situations to keep them as one hybrid topic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't, I mean, I think I've, I mean, I've made my, my thoughts on the, 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 the Wozniacki situation pretty clear, whether it was when I was writing with SI or even when I'm uh, now writing for the WTA, I've, I've said it repeatedly. I, I think that she does need a new voice and that's not necessarily because I think that Peter's a terrible coach who doesn't know what he's doing. Obviously he does. He's helped, you know, he was the one that got her to number one, but um, there comes a point where maybe she's just not listening. And, and I've talked to a few people about this before where they say that actually, you know, Peter is telling her to do the right things that she's just not executing it during, during matches and, and that she's not playing the way that necessarily he wants her to play. So maybe she just needs a different voice. Maybe she needs a, a proper you know, coach. But again, that's, it's a complicated situation in tennis, right? Because you're the boss, you're the one that did the hiring and the coach is in bolt is, is, is kind of, uh, in, indebted to you and, and you have every right to ignore what your coach says as well. So, you know, maybe it's just more about her getting to a situation where she can kind of be maybe more receptive to, to changes in her, in her game, in her tactics and her fundamentals in particular, and maybe she's just uh, maybe that ship has sailed. You know, maybe she she can't fix her game. I don't know. Yeah, I I am wondering. The ship is certainly pulling away, and there's still yeah, a, and there's she, still a rope dragging behind her. She wants to grab on, but she's busy posing. Yeah, it's it's tough because we all, if you watch Caroline Wozniacki play, you know 
you can identify the things that would make her a better tennis player. Uh, they, they, they come out and some, a lot of it is mental is, is, you know, being a player that's willing to take a little bit more risk uh, for more reward. Some of it's technical that at this point, uh, what is she now? 26, 27, 26. Mm, um, yeah. Getting up there. I think she's born yeah. in 89. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 She's one of the 89ers. Um, you know, the, there are just certain things about your game that, that uh, fundamentally you can't change, but I think she's a way better tennis player than a player that's ranked out of t- outside of the top 20. That's for darn sure. Yeah. By the way, she's 25 and born in 1990. So we're both wrong. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> speaking of, and to go to the other one, Rafa, to wrap up this. Oh, pairing. with the Tony? Yeah. I mean. I mean, I, I, I don't, I just, I don't know. I don't see it happening. But at the same time with both of them, I think uh, saying I won't do it is in some ways saying. I don't know, like, I feel like I'm on the home stretch in my career or something. It's an investment. I think making that move, especially if you're Rafa and can get, I, I realize Moya just got scooped up by Ronich, which would have been the perfect sort of part-time consultant. But doing that sort of thing is is in some ways investing in your future, you know? And I feel like not doing that, not changing, is, is a stagnant that doesn't bode well for progress at all yeah i mean the flip side of that is maybe it it gives them even more motivation the fact that you know people are criticizing them or are you know calling into question these coaching uh situations uh maybe that lights a fire under under both of these types of players who you know are definitely you know uh players who play their best when they're hungry when when they're chasing something i think so maybe that's the flip side but i i just I don't know. I, I definitely don't think that something will happen with Rafa. I, I don't think that he's the type that's going to split with Tony. Um, but uh, with Caroline, like you said, she's 25. She's still, I mean, theoretically, she's like young, you know, like she's not even, you know, she still has many years under her belt. I would like to see her give like a a, a, a different voice, a true shot at, at uh, a proper coaching gig for an extended amount of time, as opposed to kind of the short stints that, that have happened with consultants in the past. You know who doesn't even ha- bother having a coach is Nick Kyrgios, <laughs> who just won his first title in Marseille. Uh, Nick Kyrgios, probably one of the most talked about players without a title. You know, in- he's got an interesting career arc so far, to put it mildly, uh, Nick Kyrgios. And he won his first title in very convincing fashion at a 250, but a much tougher draw than like Cuevas or Cleason probably went through. Uh, Kyrgios reeled off two, three very solid wins in a row, beating Richard Gasquet, who beat Wimbledon last year, and then uh, Thomas Burdich, and then Marin Cilic, all in straight sets for his first title. But does this title signal that he's ready to do something in this WTA-ish year of ATP? <laughs> uh, I mean... Look. And what does do something even mean? Let's I guess define that's parameters. exactly exactly right. Exactly right. I mean it, So I guess let's say top ten. Let's put, put a number on it. No. Because what is more but what was more dis, more telling about Nick Kyrgios's week in Marseille was not the title, but the fact that he said basically that he's kind of okay being a part time player. That was weird. 
that was really weird, right? He basically told the, the the press, you know, I don't really want to coach. I just want people that I'm that I'm comfortable with. I want to spend more time in Australia. I want to play a more limited schedule, which is weird from a player who's never overplayed at all. Already plays an um, extremely limited schedule, yeah. A shockingly limited schedule. Um, in many ways, this is a guy that does not ever want to be in the top ten because if you do, then you are subject to 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 a more rigorous schedule and commitment rules. But yeah, so that was what to me was, I guess, yeah, it's great that you won a title, winning the title, beating the players that he beat. To me, that's just confirmation of what I already believe of Nick Kyrgios, which is that he's an incredible talent and he's very good at tennis and he can reel off wins on any given day in any given week. But to me, if you are not willing to like a put in the hard work to be a full time tennis player, to play week in and week out a full schedule, um, to get physically fit to where you can compete over the course of a two week slam, uh, best of five matches. Uh, we talked about, I talked about uh, my opinion that I think that Kyrgios is a little soft physically um, and doesn't seem to be improving on that, on that, uh, that area. I think those are the things that, that, that worry me uh, about Kyrgios and why I'm still kind of like, yeah, you might win the 250 here or there. He might finish the season winning three, four or five two fifties. I don't know, maybe a 500 in there somewhere. Is he going to make an impact um, in the Masters and uh, in the Slams in a meaningful way more so than he did in the past? Uh, I don't necessarily think so. I mean, at least the title in Marseille doesn't make me think more so than I thought before, I guess. Right. I think with Kyrgios, I think this title was him stringing together things that we've seen him do before. And I mean, like we none of these wins by themselves are shocking that he could beat a Gasquet, could beat a Burdage, could beat a Chilich. He did them all in a row, which is tough, and did them all convincing straight sets, which is impressive. So that's all good. But we've we've known that he's a talent, you know? I mean, like, the consistency is getting a little better in this one-week sample. But yeah, in terms of not committing to a full schedule, not having a coach, it, I don't see signs that he is, you know, going to be willing to challenge himself. He's it's a testament to his raw talent that he's been able to get as far as he has with all these glaring weaknesses. I mean, Nick Kyrgios right now is with his talent. I mean, maybe it's harsh to call him an underachiever, but he's certainly not, you know, overachieving or certainly not maximizing his current potential. And granted he's young in his time and lots of time to get on the right track. But right now, I mean, you see how he operates at tournaments and everything. He's, seems easily distracted, seems surrounded by enablers who say problematic things when things start going wrong. <laughs> and, you know, just you don't trust the decision makers around him who seem to be only, you know, it's a very meal tickety vibe with Team Curious and doesn't seem built for for long term. And so and, and, all, that, yeah. all that is to say, I mean, I feel like we're being very negative on all these players so far. But but Curious, yes, this is a title and it's nice, but he doesn't mean you've gotten anywhere right. with where his talent should let him be. Because he is that good. His raw talent is that good that he should be – this should not be a story. Not saying this – you're not behind schedule winning a title. I mean he's still not even 21 years old. And in an era when young guys aren't doing that much, he's doing fine. But with his talent, if he – when he – if and when he gets the maturity to click in and become more of a professional, he could do massive things. It'd be a you know in the top five. But right now there's still a long way to go from that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and this is also a month where, you know, we're seeing and obviously, I mean, he's playing. It's not like he's taking he's taking, you know, this month off or whatever. But um, 
you know, especially when you see kind of like what Dominic Team is doing and how he approaches his career. And you see even as Varev, who is lacking in a lot of ways and in terms of his uh, physicality and things like that. But but I don't think that there's necessarily the same cloud over an Alexander no. Zverev about like, oh, he doesn't work hard enough or wants it enough. Definitely or something, not. You know, um, that's where, you know, things get a little dicier taylor fritz what what obviously he's doing as a, as a teenager you know when you have his compatriot not his compatriots but his cohorts his colleagues generationally you know kind of busting their ass to try and make that breakthrough and to get the points and to try and be more professional and things like that it just makes it, it it's just i don't know it's just like a bad vibe around around camp curios but i think the other thing too and and you know i think that down the road things will change um i think that he will realize the need to you know be more professional about his career to play a full schedule to in a lot of ways respect the tour in a lot of you know i think that when you are a player who you know constantly says i'm gonna i'm gonna play a limited schedule i'm not gonna play a ton um and especially when you're a player like a curious who you know let's be let's be honest the kid puts butts in seats i mean oh, yeah. he's a player that transcends the sport, especially in, within certain de- demographics already as someone who hasn't, you know, uh, won majors or big titles or things like that. Um, when you when you just choose not to play, it's not good for the it's bad for the sport. It's bad for the tour. I mean, and he's part of the future of that tour. So, you know, just looking at his relationship with the ATP and how all that plays about it. it you know, it's it's a lot of diva behavior coming from a player who, like you said, is not even 21 year yet. And I think and I worry about what the repercussions of that will be. It's just it's it shows, like you said, I think also all those comparisons were totally fair. And it's not going to be totally fair that his not his best effort, professionalism, whatever, is going to make him a lot of money, a lot of popularity. Yeah, I know, right? And it's maybe the irony and of he, it might, all. He, he could, you know, he's so good that if the standard lowers in, in terms of what it takes to be top five to win a slam and it seems like the standard will be lowering on the atp so long as joke if, if and when Djokovic you know slips up or falls or loses whatever and murray too i mean it's gonna the top 10 is gonna be softer than it was five years ago uh three years from now i think it's pretty fair to say you know Djokovic. i, I sorry curios will be right there to get that even without making these improvements it's just it just wish that it would get through to him that he wasn't, you know, I don't know, just feels like so much, be so much better. And that's, and it's already so good. And so, uh, yeah. And even from a selfish perspective, I want to see Nick Kyrgios play tennis more. Like he's fun as hell to watch, you know, when he's playing well, even when he's not playing well, let's be honest. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just weird. And it just seems very like, immature and well the thing that that is coming to my mind right now which is why i'm pausing was that i was re-watching silicon valley the other week uh, okay. the other day which is a great show and uh there's this one episode in the first season where they're having problems like um creating this uh this obviously this program specifically they're having problems programming the cloud version the cloud aspect of their their uh their website platform so they bring in this like hacker kid programmer who's like a genius who's like 13 years old, has already hacked banks, like whatever, total genius, to come in. Kid's like, oh, just give me Mountain Dew and Adderall and I'm good. And I'll just code for four straight days and I'll get this done. And they're like, it made everybody else in that room feel like really like questioning their own skill set because they're looking at this kid at 14 who's like a complete and utter mess, like be able to absolutely 
destroy these things uh, and code and do all these sorts of things. Anyway, the kid eventually screws up and is like bit in the ass by his own hubris um, uh, and hijinks ensue. But that's kind of the, the, the thing that's popping to mind as I'm talking about Kyrgios is that he's just incredibly talented, but his hubris will bite him in the ass. And you just hope that it doesn't take down an entire, like, you know, like in this situation, like they eventually corrected it, but it threatened to take down the entire company um, that in this situation, it doesn't it doesn't have like, you know, major, major effects. But I think the kid's going to always be really big in Australia. And so long as he wants to, like, spend most of his time in Australia, he will always like be in the middle of the echo chamber of like Nick Kyrgios is a really big deal. And Nick Kyrgios and I, is awesome in person. And Nick Kyrgios is awesome in person. Him, yeah. Exactly. And that's all that he chooses to hear, even though he proclaims like to have haters and all that, which he does. But he's also kind of like only focusing on the positive. So I don't know. It's like a weird situation. I'm curious to see how it all turns out. You know, I mean, I think he's a good kid. I think that he's just, you know, ill-advised at the moment yeah. as to how to go about his career. I would I would agree with that conclusion. Huge. I think the issue is not really with Kyrgios. It's with people who are surrounding him at the moment. And yeah, so we'll see if and when anybody has the courage to stand up for what's, or get through to him on what's best for him long-term. Speaking of people who we enjoy watching, Courtney, for the first time in a while, last week we got to watch Juan Martin Del Potro, who came back in Del Rey, Del Po in Del Rey, making Del Rey. Sorry. It's okay. Del it was a lot of excitement. Share your if you can articulate your feelings in more articulate ways than that howling, go for uh, it. I don't think that I can okay. because I'm someone who tried to articulate my feelings about Delpo's return by just tweeting pictures. So yeah, no, it's just great. I mean, this is a guy who is one of the the premier talents um, in the game, you know, of the last you know decade who is back and is so universally beloved. I mean, when you talk about a player, I, I, it's hard for me outside of like a, a Roger to think of like a player that is as beloved as Delpo. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just great to see him back swinging a racket and uh, moping about between points and uh, grunting through that forehand. It's just wonderful. It's pretty. I'm not sure what the tennis was exactly. I don't know if he, I didn't see him play. He got a nice win over Shardy. Um, to make the semifinals there, where he eventually lost to Sam Querrey, who won the title, beating Rajiv Ram in the final. There wasn't a ton necessarily to say, like, oh my gosh, he's going to be back. Is Delpo is back, 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 back. Is you know, like he never left. There's thick rust on Delpo for sure, especially on the back end. But the fact that he's you know ready and coming back, he took a wild card to Indian Wells, which is a great sign that this isn't going to be a total one-off. Because I remember last year the, there were comebacks in Sydney. And Miami, but they were pretty abortive. So here's coming back way away from the spotlight in Del Rey, and it seemed to work out pretty well for him. And yeah, just totally good to have him back. On a similar note, good to see Frank Schiavone winning a title in a very depleted field in the Rio women's draw. That was a like, a little bit like what Venus did, uh, a little bit like Venus's field in Taiwan the other week. This I think there were nobody, nobody in the top hundred in the semis, maybe. A couple from was did Kirstea make the semis? I'm trying to. She remember. did. Yeah, so a couple yeah. like throwbacky names having Kirstea and Skiavoni in there, but Skiavoni wins the title, getting uh, over Shelby Rogers in the final, and three titles by Italian women in February, pretty huge. And the post Panetta era is just going well. it's, yeah, it's all impressive. It's, it's not too bad. I mean, the, they continue to write 
chapters to the 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 book about the golden generation of Italian women, and and it's a book that we thought kind of uh, already wrote its epilogue, you know, if not four months ago, uh, you know, even before that, um, it just seemed like the Italians were were pretty much done, and uh, it's it's incredibly impressive. But yeah, Francesca Schiavone winning her first title since two thousand and thirteen, Marrakesh. Uh, in Rio, obviously, yeah, not a tough field, no. but for her to get it done is massive. Back in the top 100 with that title, which is pretty great. Um, and it still just makes me really mad that she didn't get a wild card into the main draw at the Australian Open. Yeah. Right, because she was playing like she's not playing embarrassingly bad tennis. She, was, she wasn't great in Australian Open qualifying at all. I mean, she lost. So, yeah, but still. She's just such, such a delight. Her celebrations and everything after winning, she's just good people to have on the court and agreed WTA slash powers to be whatever should just make the most of her while she's still, while she's still around. Um, no doubt about that. Let's get to the main event uh, for the main home of tennis, I guess for the month of February, which is Dubai, uh, Dubai where the WTA was last week and ATP was this week. We're going to be joined in a bit by our friend, Raim Abuleo, but Courtney, I guess first your thoughts on, the week that was in Dubai, which was a historic week statistically for the AT, for the WTA, with no seeds winning matches, uh, seeds five through eight losing first round, and seeds one through four losing after they had a bye. It all wound up with a bunch of unexpected names getting through deep rounds, all culminating in a Barbara Stritzova Sarah Arani final, which was won very decisively by Sarah Arani. Uh, takeaways from anything and everything in Dubai, because there was a lot of different ways you could take that on how you wanted to yeah no i mean i think that my biggest takeaway from dubai is simply that the players that were slumping out of the australian open are continuing to slump and um and they are players that you know you hope they're going to get everything back in order sooner rather than later especially as the the tour is about to hit its two big tournaments in indian wells in miami so you know specifically talking about simona halep garbina mugarutha and petra kovitova having disappointing tournaments um in uh in dubai but otherwise you know i mean the other upsets that we saw you know they made sense um just with respect to you know vinci and benchich having to do that hard turnaround from st petersburg and things like that but but that was my big takeaway is is just more again the the confirmation that that you know halep and muguruza and uh Kavitova are still searching for the answers hopefully they find it this week in doha but i but uh, with the amount of points that especially halep has to defend in north america in march it's uh she in particular needs to needs to swing things around. Yeah, do you know actually like the numbers on what Halep is looking at rankings wise if she doesn't do well in let's say she loses early this week in Doha and in Indian Wells, like can she be out of top five? Um, you know, that's a good question. I uh top five, top five, top five, top five. Uh, maybe because you'll there's a potential. I mean, Sharapo- you're looking at Sharapova as someone who has mo- uh, room to gain right. through Indian Wells in Miami. Um, and she's she's pretty down there at the moment. I mean, I I think that that Halep might be safe top five, but but um, actually, but look, look, looking at the rankings that I'm looking at, it looks like she could definitely be vulnerable. I mean, if if Muguruza has a decent stretch and Sharapova, like you said, has room to grow, uh, Benchich actually, yeah, Benchich. is moving up. Has a, it's a pretty again, like like we said with Djokovic and the ATP, pretty big gap between Serena and the rest and like right now three through uh well three through five are pretty close and then or two two through five actually with Kerber too and then yeah but Kerber has tons tons of room to grow until until Charleston so she has 
a lot of room that she can make up. Uh, yeah, so, make up so Halib can definitely, if, even if it doesn't affect sure. her spots-wise, she can lose a lot of points. Yes, so, no, yeah. for sure. Um, so yeah, she's she's one that I'm I'm definitely looking at. But uh, but yeah, that was kind of my big takeaway from Dubai. I mean, I was happy to see Streets of a play well. That's, um, that was pretty great. I think a relevant Barbara Streets of a is 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 a good time for all. It's been such a treat having streets like be. They it really kind of happened on our watch, I guess, according to when we were in Birmingham and she made the final out of nowhere. Very and true. Since then, not to take all the credit for it, but I feel like since then, like she has been, you know, relevant in a way. She was a bit of a punchline before because of her. Actually, her antics were a lot more pronounced when she was not winning as much. Um, she was and she was harder to find, so she was a bit of an you know urban legend kind of player almost <laughs> uh, in, a, in a Nicolescu-esque way, but for different reasons, obviously. And now that she's yeah coming into her own late in her career, like so many of these players, like Avinci, like a Panetta Schiavone, not having quite their success yet, obviously. But yeah, she is a delight. We're, I would definitely want to have Barbara on NCR at some point this year. I've talked to her a bunch before, and she's great. So we'll try to get her on the show. That'll be a promise we'll try to keep for you guys. We'll be places where she'll be. So. That is lovely. That's a good. That's a good call. Yeah, uh, but with all that said, let's talk to someone else who's lovely, Rayma Belail of Sport Three Hundred and Sixty in Dubai, who we talked to about issues with the Dubai Women's Tournament last week and the Men's Tournament next week coming up. This is her time to shine. So here is Raim. So we are delighted to be joined by our NCR Dubai correspondent Rayma Abelail <laughs> of the newspaper Sport Three Hundred and Sixty out there in Dubai. Raim, how you doing? How you been since I last saw you on the way home from Australia? I've missed you guys. Oh yeah, I saw you after Courtney as well. That was that was fun. That was a fun uh, two or three hours. I took you to the beach at night, which was fun. Yes, in Dubai. I got I had a twenty-one hour layover in Dubai, and Rain was perfect there to help be my I don't know tour guide through the the wonderful city of Dubai. And now the tennis is there, and you have sort of a unique setup. I don't know if there are any other places now on tour that do the. One week, one week. I guess Auckland does, but the one week women, one week men, back to back. How is that for you as a reporter? Does it feel like just twice as much work, or is it you like having them spaced out, or how does that? How, how does the honestly? Yeah, it's it? it's uh it's bizarrely brutal. Even though they're not they're not like huge tournaments, but at the same time, because all the top players or most of the top players uh, come here, and so I, I'm basically working for more than two weeks straight, which kind of makes it feel to me like it's the same effort as a slam, even though they're smaller draws, but because it's a local tournament for me, so I also have to do a lot of work. So it's uh it's intense, and I kind of feel I actually probably would enjoy it more if uh, if it was combined in the same week simply because it's just extending it for too long but obviously the facilities here cannot accommodate that so it's life and i'm happy can't complain. Yeah. after it's complaining life. you know do you, do you know do you know if there's ever been talk, you, do you know if there's ever been talk about combining it because i know that like rome used to be back-to-back weeks and cincinnati used to be back-to-back weeks and both of them went combined i'll tell you what i'm hearing there's this weird story that came out here which i don't know if courtney knows more about or not i'm still uh digging into it to understand but mickey uh laurie if i'm pronouncing her name right i hope i am lole okay i'm sorry uh, was uh was here the presence of the wca and apparently she said that there's going to be a meeting next week to discuss the whole alternating stat uh, premier five status that doha and dubai do 
currently, the uh, one year Dubai is the Premier Five and Doha is the Premier, and then they switch every year. And the tournament that uh, that ends up with the lower status kind of suffers because uh, a lot of play, uh, players choose to withdraw and stuff, which happened this time. Because sure. you have players like Wozniaki and Aga and all these players who pulled out of here but ended up going to Doha. Um, so I think they're trying to look at a different scenario. And I don't know what the different scenario is. I don't understand what would be the solution. But um, I don't know. They're going to play. They're going to do something. Because she said there's a, next week there's a meeting to discuss what would be best for everybody. So I don't yeah. know how, uh, how. Do you know what's happening? No, I mean, I, I don't know what the, the the substance of the conversations are, unfortunately, in my private office out in San Francisco. I am not really in contact with most of the people back uh, back in St. Pete's, but um, I do know that this week there are there are meetings um, uh, and a lot of that stuff is on the table and is, is set to be discussed. Um, I didn't know specifically that the five, that the, the Middle East stuff was was on the table, but, you know, I mean, it, it one of the interesting things that um, that I was thinking about, though, because you wrote a really good article, I thought, um, at the start of last week about kind of the alternating status of both tournaments and like whether mm-hmm. or not it's the way to go, whether, you know, because obviously, yes, one tournament is going to suffer because, you know, mm-hmm. it's not going to get the, the, the five status uh, for that particular mm-hmm. year. But, um, you know, is that is that the? I mean, in your opinion, is that the better way to go to have them alternate or do you want just like Dubai to have the five and too bad Doha? Um you know what? 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 What do you think is? Is there a solution? I guess that you can I'll, see. I'll tell you what. Now that I've uh, I've I've covered both tournaments in in both scenarios, uh, when Dubai was just Premier Five, and then now that it's alternating, and I've been to the, the Doha one, and I've been here, I kind of feel that. Uh, players are going to keep doing the exact same thing. They're going to commit to both, thinking, oh, yeah, we have a Middle East swing, that's easy, it's only a 50-minute flight between both, we, we can manage. And then they're going to book so many things, kind of like Wozniaki booking her Sports Illustrated promotional activities, blah, blah, the same mm-hmm. week as the, as the first tournament, and then they're just going to pull out of the one that they can't, like the, the, the one of the lower status. So I, I'm starting to see now a pattern, which I probably did not see before when this thing started. So... Now that I've seen the pattern, I kind of feel you're almost better off always just having one of them be the bigger one because it's just I I don't I don't know money wise how it's affecting them. But listen, the stands usually are fuller fuller here. Like this is usually the toughest ticket in town and it was not a sellout by any means. I mean, yes, people people still showed up for the last rounds, but no. So I feel like the tournament suffered and especially the late withdrawals, it's bad for everybody because this time it also, that was a different angle, which I mentioned in that article was that we ended up because there were so many withdrawals. There's a player, Julia Gorges, who had a wild card. She didn't need the wild card anymore because she actually made it into the main draw uh, on merit by her ranking. And then that fourth wild card just disappeared into thin air. Nobody got it, which it could have gone to an Arab player or something, you know? So it's just there's so many complicated consequences of the situation. I'm not sure what they're going to do. Uh, also, in general, uh, Qatar and the UAE are so competitive with each other in everything you can think of. So this is really pitting them against each other even more. You know mm. what I mean? Do, yeah. Do, pe- do people there so, under- understand the difference? Because I feel like even people inside tennis getting into like the minutia of Premier versus Premier 5 into the WTA roadmap can a lot of people's eyes sort of glaze over when that stuff comes up. So do people on the ground there really understand 
what's at stake or do fans or whoever understand the difference between I'm, this stuff? I'm pretty sure the fans don't really understand it. Yeah. Uh, how, uh, however, all they can see is that one year uh, they have a really good lineup and the second year they don't. And I think they also started realizing one draws bigger than the other. Uh, yeah. The media themselves, like local media, I found so many people coming up to me and they're like, hey, we really want to understand what's happening. Obviously, Dubai was a 64 draw last year. Now everyone's like freaking out here. They think that they're going to take the status from Dubai, whatever, because obviously we don't know what's happening and we don't know the details. Uh, but literally, Arabic media, because they don't really understand what's happening, they're running with a story that, oh my God, Dubai might lose the tournament. And I'm like, wow. guys, they've paid money for this tournament like it's not gonna disappear in thin air they're just looking for a better situation so i honestly don't know what they're gonna do and also by the way another thing that hurt doha was when they moved the week the week used to be uh, the one before dubai so there were actually three back-to-back tournaments in the middle east there was the doha uh, wta dubai wta then uh, Dubai ATP. But when they moved Doha, when they started alternating that status for whatever reason, they pushed it to the same week as the men's ATP. So many media publications don't send journals to Doha anymore, including mine. I usually had three back-to-back weeks and I would cover all three. But now I'm in Dubai covering the men and I'm not going to Doha, which is also hurting the tournament because yeah. there's barely any media there as well. So it's it's not great. It's not a great situation. No, for sure. It, it would seem it would seem to me too. I mean, the, the, what you touched on is I don't know. It resonates with me, which is that it's incredibly difficult to maintain momentum and to build momentum mm-hmm. as a tournament when mm-hmm. you're alternating status, right? When you can't guarantee Absolutely. the following year a similar lineup or a similar look or feel of the tournament because you know you have a, a, a one notch lower. That's pretty tough, and especially when you're dealing with a, a, a fan base that maybe. You know, and, and not that they should have to have dive into the minutia of things to understand, mm-hmm. you know, the product that they're getting year in, year out. That that can be I, I, I definitely have sympathy for the tournament organizers <laughs> to have to kind of juggle that because that's it's a tough thing to have to, to, to constantly try and guarantee to somebody, which is a fan. Mm-hmm. This is what the product is, but the product mm-hmm. by rule will change every year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree, to be honest. And you can see it, like, from day one, everyone was like, where where, where are the big names? Where is everybody? Why aren't they here? And no one gets it, and no one understands it. Uh, no one could understand how Simona Halep was playing Anna Ivanovic in the second round, which wouldn't have happened if it was a bigger draw, probably. I mean, right. Anna's ranked 17. I don't know if she would have been seated. In, is she seated in Doha? Yeah, Honestly, she would be seated there. Yeah, so, I mean... That also was one of those things where we literally got a... This could have been the final. It was a brilliant match, and it was a second round, and everybody didn't get it at all. And then they had to watch Sara Irani play Barbara Stutz to find the final, so they didn't get it even more. <laughs> so yeah, I think <laughs> you mean they got to watch Barbara Stutz and Sara Irani play the final. Oh, Babsy. Babsy, uh, what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. That was painful as well. I mean... Listen, it was such an eventful week in in a in a in a crazy way. For me, I had so much fun. I enjoyed covering it, but let's just say so many people don't get it. <laughs> like it was confusing for so many people. Yeah, let's talk just what it was like on the ground. Courtney and I talked last week on the show about the withdrawals happening, you know, in sort of mm-hmm. more abstract sense. When players like even if we kind of all knew that like 
I guess Sharapova was never on the Dubai list, but she was on the Doha list. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And Serena pulled out, and it wasn't a big surprise, really, for us. And with Caroline pulling out and mm-hmm. seeing the swimsuit stuff, it makes sense. On the ground, how do those sort of things resonate? Do people feel actually surprised when a Serena pulls out, or does everyone You know what? Know people are very surprised. That's yeah. the thing. We know. We know. We just saw Serena in Melbourne. We know what's going on. We know she was in Jamaica. We know all this stuff. But also, And the hardcore fans know that as well, who are following her on Snapchat and this and that. But let's just say the people here did not think Serena was not coming. Serena, mm. Serena's face is all over town. On Sheikh Zayed Road, the main road, on the bridge coming here to the tournament, at the airport. It's, her face is plastered all over town. Actually, the main faces that were on every single billboard were Serena Williams, Anyashka Radbanska, and Caroline Wozniacki. They, the three of them did not show up, okay? Oof. So, so no, people were shocked, and I actually saw some fans who were very upset and were like, we want uh, refunds when the announcement was made. Yeah. So uh, so there were people on side who were like, we want refunds. I'm not saying there were a lot of them, but I did bump to, into a couple or like a few saying that. Uh, so, no, people... Literally, th- and and you know what? Even the local PR company, Promo Seven, who take care of the tournaments here, for them it was a blow. They didn't know either. They 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 held hope. But listen, Serena has done this three of the last four years, three times in the last four years. So I think by now they should see a pattern, <laughs> and maybe not expect her. Yeah. I don't know. One thing, one thing that I that I will always like kind of tell people is like you know with respect to withdrawals and things like that. Always like maybe like about ten days before a tournament is set to begin, go to that tournament's main official website and read mm. the articles that are being written and see who's being focused on and who isn't. Mm. And that is like a lot of times you'll see tournaments tip their hands there. In ter- yeah, because if you no. went to the if you went to the DDF site, like for a while the leads were like stories on Pliskova. Like and uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? No, like, but and- they had but you know what? Because they had already sent the Serena one when we were in Melbourne. So so what they try to do is uh, with this particular company, what they try to do is, is always send different names. So they started with Serena and they did send the Serena stuff. And I was actually reluctant oh, yeah, to for send sure. the Serena stuff, you know, but I understand what you mean. They were obviously focusing on the ones who had accepted wild cards and they knew they were coming and everything. I mean, let's face it. The wild cards were actually Pliskova and Kvitova and Halep. it was supposed to be Gorgas and, Hal- and Halep. So they, they I mean, those three saved the tournament, even though they were around for one match. But still, can you imagine if they hadn't come and with all the withdrawals? There was basically, what, Garbinier from the top 10? Yeah. And that's pretty much it. Yeah, so let's talk about those lo- those first-round losses. How does that... This was the first time, apparently, according to Jeff Sackman of Tennis Abstract, first time in either tour that no seeds had won a match in the main draw at yeah. all in a tournament I, I, in Dubai. Four women, the five through eight seeds lost first round, one through four had buys and then lost second round. And some of them were good matches. Like you said, Halep Ivanovic was a good match. It wasn't like, and a lot of them had mm-hmm. relatively tough or explicable draws. I mean, Benchich and Vinci, and Vinci were both coming from St. Petersburg final. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but, but still, 0 for 8 is, is rare and has to, what, what was the reaction to the tournament when that happened and how did it affect the rest of the week going forward? Actually, it was uh, in a way it was a bit funny that uh, the the second day, which was, uh, I mean Wednesday, Wednesday was the day it rained here, and we never get rain, so you know that when it rains, something very strange is going to happen. First of all, and it wasn't just normal rain; there was a hailstorm, and it interrupted play for almost four hours. So, in a way, you 
it's tough for players to spend all day waiting. The matches finish really late. You have someone like Christina Mladenovic, her match finished at 1.15 a.m., which they're not really used to doing here. So a lot of the... I can see that every single one of the losses was kind of on its own is not a surprise. You know what I mean? Uh, whether it's in the first round or whether it was the day of the rain. Uh, you can always tell if uh, Petra Kvitova is playing on an outside court here. Honestly, I've never seen her win on an outside court here. She always loses that match. And she always gets stuck in this very long three-setter and loses. Um, and then you have someone... The whole, the whole situation was terrible, but in a, in a way where people couldn't get it. People don't understand why Garbinia is ranked in the top five and is losing that match, you know? People don't understand this. And the reaction in general, because everyone is spoiled here to a great extent and you always have, like, so many top players and you always have finals with the... Even Venus won here, you know, three times. They're used to that kind of stuff. So the fact that all these players were losing... Actually, even before the tournament started, they were like, oh my God, there's no Serena, there's no Kerber, number one and two are not coming, why are we here? And I'm like, guys, wait, there's still good players. And then I feel like they jinxed the situation. <laughs> and in the end, really, it was just, it was like a snowball effect. It was crazy because all the matches were happening simultaneously because when the rain happened, they had to move matches away from center court. And there were two, like, I think three outside courts were in play. So it was all happening at the same time. And we're literally, like, my deadline is approaching. It's approaching 1 a.m. Kivitova um, finished, I think, really, really late. So it was, like, one after the other. You're, like, waiting. Okay, so Halep's out. And then, oh, my God, Garbini's out. And then we're, like, okay, I'm not. And every time I'm updating the line, seven of the eight seeds. (laughs) It was first six of the eight seeds have lost without winning a match. And then it was, like. Seven, and then in the end, I just updated it literally right before deadline. I was like, eight out of the eight. <laughs> so it was a bit crazy. People didn't get it at all. But in another way, I thought, first of all, it, it was it was fun covering this. I know I know it sounds bad, but it, for me, it was fun covering it. No, I mean, Courtney, I'm sure both of we've been at tournaments where the draw is quote unquote falling apart. Um, I think at Charleston even last year, it, there were a lot of early losses. Jeannie was the number one seed and lost early and a couple other pullouts. I think Makarova was two and pulled out or something like that. And we got a, a Kerber Keys final that emerged out of the wreckage that was pretty awesome. So, I mean, I think if yeah. you're like a tennis, you know, diehard on any level, having, getting to see players, like you said, getting to see Stritseva on big stages and important matches this can be kind of a treat. No, I mean, I, I just think, you know, I think that if you're a tennis diehard, if you're a person that's in the trenches every day, if you're one of the people who, you know, is on Twitter watching every single result, not a single result really that happened in Dubai last week was shocking. They, they, they weren't. They just yeah. really, really weren't. These are players who are struggling to start their season sputtering, not really playing, you know, their best tennis at all. So it's going to take them some time. So the fact that, you know, the top eight seeds lost under the circumstances that each one is facing, it's like, yeah, okay, that's about probably a confirmation of exactly where I think they are in their games right now. But, mm-hmm. um, but you know, at the same time, what Reem's saying is absolutely right, which is that to the casual fan, to the fan who sees tennis in the Middle East once a week uh, every year um, and otherwise just follows things kind of on a very, very top-line basis, it can be absolutely confusing. I totally understand that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think though I have to say that the only surprise for me was Garbini. I was totally thrown off by her comments after the match when she was like, I can't find my game. It, she was quite dramatic, which um, didn't really translate on paper if you were reading the quotes, but she did not look happy at all. She's like, I can't find my game. I think I need a break. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm playing Doha. And she, she was quite dramatic. And I was like, I watched your practices and they were not bad. 
She had been there for several days. I watched two of her practices. She was not arguing with Sam, which we've been seeing a lot. There were no arguments. <laughs> uh, she was smack. She was smacking backhands really. She was doing really well. So that for me was shocking that she just immediately stepped off the court and was like crushed. And I didn't get that because with Petra, we saw it coming. Petra, Petra, even in her like round table before the tournament, you could tell like she's not feeling well. You have someone like Brengel who was confident after beating Makarova. Who had beaten uh, her she's before, already... yeah. Exactly. And she's so used to playing lefties at this point because she's played Kerber twice this year already. And then Makarova and then Kvitova. So she's like, bring on the lefties. I don't care. I'm just going to bring back every ball. So... In a way, that was like like Courtney said, a lot. Of, none of them were shocking, but the only one for me that was a bit surprising was Muguruza. I don't, I don't know why she was so like she had she lacked energy and and she just over dramatized the loss. So yeah, not I don't think I, I don't I think there's a lot of people wondering what the heck is is going on with her and you know first and foremost probably herself she's probably mm. can't can't figure it out but that was interesting because I remember talking to you last week about it because yeah I had read the quotes and I was like oh no I mean she just sounded like in my head the way that I read them was just like yeah I don't know maybe I'm just not like you know uh prepared or I'm not ready to compete but it sounds like uh and this is why it's important to have people in the room uh <laughs> it sounds like her body language was was far more negative than that which is which is uh surprising to hear for sure yeah not no, definitely. So you mentioned being spoiled, Raym, and you definitely are because you have this 500 level event uh, <laughs> coming up next week on the men's side, just to switch to them briefly, with uh, Djokovic and Stan playing two top four players, or top three, top four, top four, anyway. And you mm -hmm. were saying, oh, it's just Djokovic and Stan this year. Meanwhile, <laughs> like for me, with the 500 event in Washington, which is theoretically the same level, and actually I think we have a bigger draw than you. We have a 48 draw. Um mm -hmm. We never get top five guys, like, at all. We got Murray once last year, and it was amazing, and he lost first match to Gabishvili. <laughs> um, so what is what is the gearing up for that like, and how big of a loss is it not having Federer, because he's kind of in the face of that tournament? Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Federer, when Federer's not in this tournament, it's like some people don't even bother showing up, which is insane. Uh, however, I have to say, today, uh, Novak plays his first round. It was a full house first day, Monday night, so I was very happy to see that. Uh, but the attitude in general is like, oh my God, Roger's not here. Oh my God, Roger's not here. Um, I would have thought that Stan would be a, a big draw card that people would be interested because Stan has given uh, Djokovic tough matches at slams and stuff. So I thought maybe people are excited. Okay, Novak and Stan can play each other in the final. However, it wasn't publicized really well, the fact that Stan was coming. Uh, so in everybody's mind, oh, we're not going to get a djokovic Federer final. This is going to be really bad. But, um, but the turn, I mean turnout for day one was good um still like even when you look at the draw a lot of people are like oh we wanted stronger matchups blah, blah blah but no i i think it's a good i think it's a really good draw i think there are some really good first rounds um i mean kirius is playing here for the first time i don't know if he's still gonna be playing well but he's got klizan in the first round and klizan just won a title in rotterdam and kirius obviously just won a title as well so that's like a first round that's really interesting yeah and no. there's so many there's, there's so many other good matches i mean you mentioned having i mean you just had an irani champion the two 500 level champs <laughs> so far on the men's side this year have been klizan and pablo cuevas so yes. who knows what you're getting <laughs> That is very true, but I saw Novak play today, and I was like, this guy does not know what rust means. He hasn't played in three weeks, and it's like nothing. He just completely demolished Tommy Robredo, and what, I, that was barely over an hour, and that was it. So um, 
I think we can count on Novak, and especially that his draw, he's got like all these Spaniards in his draw, and he's beaten them all. He's got like Roberto Bautista Agut in his half. He's the number four seed, and in his quarter, he's got Feliciano Lopez. So I don't see him losing to either one of these people. And yeah, I think I think Novak's gonna win this. I think Stan Ooh, is in a weird hot place. Take, hot take. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, li- <laughs> listen, it's ridiculous. When he, I, I, I don't see Novak lose here except to Roger, and it didn't happen that many times. Yeah. Uh, and Roger's not here, so honestly, <laughs> I don't see anyone beating him. Well, the only things that you can count on in the 2016 tennis season are Novak and uh, Hingis and Mirza. That's it. Yeah. Like everything <laughs> else is pretty much up in the air. We don't know. We roll the dice. We kind of shrug and we see how it all plays out. But uh, yeah, some crazy results across the board on both sides of the aisle. <laughs> yep. I'm still, so, I'm still so sad that Barbara didn't give a match to Irani. That was my only disappointment. Oh, I but, wanted, I wanted her to. I thought it was going to be a good match, and oh well. No, but the crowd was so on her side too because obviously she wasn't winning a single game. So they really, really, really started cheering for her. And then I remember right before she was serving when she had lost. I think she lost the first eight games or nine games. Not eight games. I think she won the ninth. Something like that. Yeah. And and before she was about to serve. Everyone was clapping and screaming, and she started laughing. Like, she literally started laughing at the situation she was in. She's like, oh, my God, I can't win a single game. I have Dubai behind me. I can't believe I'm in this final. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. And then, actually, she wasn't, I mean, she wasn't too disappointed after that, so. Well, we were not too disappointed with anything in Dubai because we were reading your coverage, Raymond. It was wonderful. So keep (laughs) it up for this men's week. Escape slaying. And we guys are so sweet. Thanks very much, Reem, for being with us. Thank you, guys. I'll see you soon. Truly fulfilling her role as the NCR Dubai correspondent, Reem was kind enough to share with us the audio from her interview today with tournament director of Dubai, Salah Talak, who has expressed some disappointment with how the WTA tournament played out with all the withdrawals last week. So here is Raim and Salah Talal. Basically, I know that uh, you know? the okay. deal with Doha and Dubai is, is, has all been to alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. Is that working well for you or not? Because obviously it was, it's a brand, relatively a new concept. And uh, so I wanted to know what your thoughts are on this situation. Uh, I would say yes and no. Okay. For us, it's not a big deal to have uh, 500 or 250. Mm. Because Dubai is Dubai. Mm. Uh, the week is good for us. It's working. For us, back to back. Whereas in Doha, I think they play men's the first week mm. of the year, and then they play later. So it, it, for them, it's a different ball game. Mm. For us, it's uh, it's a one event. It's back to back, and then we sell everything as a one, mm. as a one packet. This is the first time ever for us to have, you know, to lose all the eight top ten mm-hmm. uh, yes, before yes. the quarterfinals. Mm. And I came to know through Gulf News, Alaric. He said, "You guys are the fourth event over the years that." not to have top eight seeded before the quarterfinal. That's really bad. And that hit us badly. Uh, the players, sometimes they don't they don't see, they don't think that how much the events, the cities they are putting, investing money behind this. And we, we invest a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine we, have, we build the stadium, we build the hotels, a five-star hotel. So it's all, it's, it's all counts, you know, it's over mm-hmm. the years. Mm-hmm. And then imagine to have all the, uh, you know, their picture, like Serena, mm-hmm. Radwaska, uh, Carolina, all of them on Sheikh Jarrah Road and building, and that it's all money. It's mm. all money. If you can't, that's gonna be a lot of money. Yeah. So uh, for us, it's really bad. So we're we're losing a lot of money. And then plus, mm. and to lose uh, one of our brand ambassador not to come. Yeah. 
Uh, yet, yes, she did well. Nobody denies that. We we absolutely appreciate what she did for us previously, and she mm. was really good at it. She mm. attended all whatever she has uh, committed. She delivered. She mm. came. But this year, everything came, you know, the, the worst. Time. Yeah, mm. just everything collapsed. Mm. That's really bad, you know. Okay, all the top seat not coming, not attending, and impacted on our ticket sales. Yeah, ticket sales that was very bad. Mm. So again, it is when you at the end of the the day, the year, there's a PNL. So we are mm. losing a lot of money. Yeah. Okay. And then you you could see the the final, the first day of the men's same time of the mm. final mm. singles. Mm. I think in the final I would say it was uh, final of the ladies. I think I would say it was 50% mm. full. Whereas the first day of the men, 7 p.m., it was packed. Yeah. Okay, that, that's number one, the difference. Second, the difference, they finished at one hour and seven minutes. The Djokovic match, one hour and five minutes. Mm. And see, see the difference. And then there's still people that stayed for the, for the second match, mm-hmm. even later. So uh, this is the problem. So we but, spend a lot of money on ladies, and we said equalizing the money, prize money. Mm. But it seems it's not working. Mm. Yeah. So they're going to, do you think it can change? Uh, Hopefully, I hope so. Because we're not happy about the whole situation, and we have done a lot for the WTA, and we're still doing, and we're still global sponsors, so we still like the the game, we still like the sport, and we don't want to also be in a way to penalizing them because they have done well. But again, tournament without players, no tournament, and uh, cities without spending money, there is no tournament. But you know, it's all connected, and it's all part of the whole. Game. So do you think there's a lack of commitment from the players? Oh yeah, big time. Players, the main thing. Okay, thank you so much. Good luck. Thank you very much, Raim. And the last topic, Courtney, I wanted to get to with you is something we've written about, someone we've both written about early in this year, who's Ashley Barty, who I wrote about in January. I talked to her during the Brisbane tournament when she was at a cricket stadium at the GABA in uh, Brisbane. We talked about her switch to playing pro cricket instead of tennis, and you talked to her when... Not too long later, like two weeks later or so, she had decided to make her comeback to tennis full time and is now back playing ITFs and doubles and back with her old partner, Casey Delacqua, I believe this week and doing pretty well. So I guess what, are, what were your thoughts, Courtney, on you talked to her after this decision to come back to tennis was more final thoughts on where her head's at and where she is going, can go short run long run anything like that um i think that the biggest thing is just that 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 she wants to pick up a racket again and um that that the idea of playing tennis is you know no longer burdensome to her she's not the type of you know especially you know as we have in the last couple of years uh gone through two cycles of very young precocious uh talents in singles particularly you know talking about you know, uh, Sloane Stevens, uh, Madison Keys, Eugenie Bouchard, Garbina Muguruza, you know, Benchich, players who, you know, kind of uh, not just were prepared for the spotlight, but seemed to to crave it, you know, and, and seemed to want to be a thing, to be, you know, the next big thing in a lot of ways. And Ash Barty is not hardwired for that. No. Um, and, uh, not to say that her results were ever, you know, in the grand scheme of things, anything close to what, you know, those four players that I mentioned, uh, achieved, but it, with it, with respect to doubles, you know, what three slam finals. Yeah. And I was going to push back on that. I mean, in 2013, I think it was getting my number years. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 2013, she made three slam finals when she was 16. Yeah. And that's crazy. It's nuts. And it, it's that kind of thing. And I think at the time she had the same sort of reaction 
and she was getting comparisons to Martina Hingis and things like that and just didn't feel ready for it. You know, she's a very, she's very, very Aussie. She's so Aussie. Aussies. She's so Aussie. She is and the Aussiest like, of the Aussies. No doubt about it. In a way that's it. like incredibly like unassuming and just unpretentious and doesn't, it's very understated and very hum- like genuinely humble or genuinely, you know, not there to try to impress anybody or to have a lot of arrogance or anything like that. Very, very uh, deferential and everything. And so when this, all the success came too soon, she says it now herself, she thinks it's, a, you know, too much too soon or a bit of a victim of her own success is a frame she, a phrase she used uh, before and uh, just felt like, and just wasn't enjoying it. The the lifestyle of traveling and being away from family and missing family events is tough and not as much as a lot of kids dream of it for her. She was somebody who was put on a very, very fast track with her success. And at the same time, like you mentioned, the single success wasn't quite there. And so even with all the success pushing her forward, she also had this lingering legitimate, I guess you could say, not, I mean, it's unfair to be grading her on that level, but shortcoming. She was getting a lot of wild cards into things when she was being an Aussie with Tennis Australia, all of their wild card hookups and being a junior Wimbledon champ and things like that. She got those wild cards too. So she's getting a lot of chances to play on big stages and not always breaking through. And it just got to be too much. And she stepped away for quite a while. Um, I, you should read both of our pieces, I guess, both of us go into detail about her change or going to play cricket, things like that. And yeah, her now coming back, I hope that she's, you know, unlike Curios, who I may, maybe, and maybe this does put Curios in a different light, but unlike Curios, I would say, I don't have any issue with the circumstances she's been in for Ashbari taking it totally at her own pace. And if she wants to come back just to doubles, like totally great. Or, you know, not try singles for a year or something like that. Um, I think with her early success and the difficulty she had with it, I think she just totally earned the right to uh, to choose her own path here. And if it's not making her happy at some point, stop and no problem with that either. Yeah, I think that this goes towards that whole idea of, of to each player their own time. Uh, and that was like a big theme of, coincidentally, my, my uh, post- uh, Australian Open write-up of uh, Angelique Kerber and uh, just mm. that that each player just you know they don't players don't do things according to the timeline that we place upon them and um, and I think that fans and pundits and coaches and you know tennis con- cognoscenti can be very harsh because players don't do things when they expect that those players should be doing things. We're all guilty of it. We, this is, I mean, especially with Ben and I, this is literally our job. I mean, our job is to provide our analysis of, of these situations and they can be cruel at times and and they're never fair, but (laughs) that's part of sports journalism and part of what we have to do. Um, and just sports, but, um, but with Ash, yeah, I think that that's the biggest thing. I mean, you hate to hear, that somebody's, you know, 16, 17 years old and just hates the sport that they they grew up loving. Like just from a basic level, like that's incredibly disheartening. Or hates, or hates how hates the lifestyle. Yeah, exactly, right. Uh and so that was incredibly disheartening. So so you know, for her to to come back and say, "You know what? I and be reminded that, you know, I love this sport and I love it from a pure perspective." Again, like, you know, you brought up Kyrgios and and I was reeling off a few of, of the young WTA players. I mean, I, you know, Barty is not the one that wants the headlines ever. Uh, she doesn't necessarily want the, the fame. She's not tweeting nonstop uh, selfies uh, at events and uh, talking about, you know, meeting famous people or anything like that. Like she just, you just get the sense when you're around Ash that she just loves the sport. Um, and I think that one of the, 
really telling things that um, she said to me was I asked her, you know, what was the highlight of your first career? You know, what was the best thing? And I mean, this is a kid that has a lot of things to choose from. I mean, she was junior Wimbledon champion, three-time uh, Grand Slam finalist in doubles. I mean, those are obviously the things that I would have thought she cited. And she said, no, it was getting my first win at Davis Cup, or I'm sorry, in Fed Cup uh, in a live rubber. She's like, there's nothing like playing for Australia. I was like, oh my goodness, you are, you are blue. At, so awesome. You are golden green, you, you know, like to the core, you are an Aussie. And uh, and she was like, yeah, I mean, there were those other things, but no, it was, it was, it was winning my first live live rubber. I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, but that's so, that's so Ash. Um, and that's what she wants. So I just, I just hope that it works out for her. And if it doesn't work out, like if it's not fun, that she walks away with, with the total, you know, peace in her mind and peace in her heart. And, you know, she's a, she's an incredibly gifted kid and a really nice one too. So I just hope that it all works out. So thank you very much for joining us on this episode of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can send us emails like we got one about Wozniacki earlier. Those were great. Uh, you can send us emails, nochallengeremaining at gmail.com with questions or any other inquiries, thoughts, feelings, whatever. Uh, we appreciate all of those. You can subscribe to NCR on any podcast app or RSS feed and that's great you get new episodes delivered automatically don't have to go waiting around for us to post them on social media which is usually pretty quick but not always totally immediate so that's a great way to have them there getting them queued up for binge listening or whatever else executive producers of no challenge remaining for 2016 are francisco resendez of tennisballs.com and tal woolly courtney you have any feelings as february lurches forward any rants, any raves? Oh, I, I'm, it's, I guess it's not really. Is there really winter where you live? I don't think there no, is. Not really. No, no, no. it's not winter. Anyway. <laughs> uh, we had a bit of a cold snap. It dropped to about 62 degrees the other day. So oh. <laughs> that's God. where that's where we're at in California. Um, rants and raves. OK, let's see. I will start first with a rant and a rave, uh, but it all circles okay. around the concept of customer service. Um, so like I travel a lot, obviously, and for the most part, like my bank is pretty good about fraud protection alerts and things like that. They're not overly aggressive. You know, sometimes they are, but I understand them. And when, especially when I'm traveling abroad and all of a sudden they get a, a transaction, at, you know, in Shanghai, I understand when you block my card. I have been home all of February. In the last seven days, my card has been blocked three times uh, for suspicious activity or whatever. I call in, get it removed the first time, literally 24 hours later, another one. I was like, okay, called, got it removed again. And then over the weekend, got a call, got a, a text message that there was another issue. So like I call in today and at this point I'm pretty fed up because these are all transactions that are happening in the States. There's nothing suspicious about them. They're not for extravagant amounts of money. Like there's just no reason why these blocks should be put on my card. So I call, I get put on hold for like 25 minutes before I talk to a customer service rep. I talk to the rep, I go through the whole thing, like, and I just kind of had had enough and just kind of was just like, look, I know that you are not in control of this. And I know that you're not the one that's like putting these holds up in my card, but like, you guys have never given me an explanation as to why this is happening. And it's happening at such frequency. And it's like inconsistent with how like the bank has treated my card in the past. So it's just like really frustrating from a customer service perspective, because he was just very like, sticking to his script and like not being sympathetic at all to the concerns that I was putting before him, which was frustrating. So 
you know, that's just annoying on every single level. On the flip side, and this is so, it sounds so trivial now that I've just realized I've been talking about fraud alerts and banks and things like that. I use, um, like, in terms of, like, a journal that I use, not journal, but, like, notebooks that I use to write in uh, mm-hmm. regularly, I, I, I use field notes notebooks. I used to use a lot of Moleskine notebooks, but I've, I've transitioned over to field notes. Anyways, so um, just randomly last week, I can't remember how I ended up on it, but I stumbled onto their website, and I normally just buy them from Amazon, and they were like, oh, free shipping for $50 or more. I was like, okay, well, I need to buy some anyway. So I bought, like... Um, maybe three, four packs, I guess, of uh, field notes, uh, notebooks, which are like three in a pack. And the package came this weekend and they had like included like $20 worth of free notebooks, like in my package, uh, which was crazy. Like, so each pack is like three notebooks and each pack is like $10. And they, I ordered four and they included two more. And I kind of feel like they did it just to like even out the 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 packaging because it was it like it was like three and three side by side inside of a, a box. Um, but they also included like random stuff like a free pen, a free pencil, like whatever. And it was like so nice. And I was like, dude, <laughs> like this is awesome. I'm gonna tell everybody about it. Like, and it made my day. Like I was just like, that's really, really a wonderfully nice thing to do. So there's there's my 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 rant rave on customer service for the you don't often get free stuff that's cool i mean like the only time i can think of is at all analogous is one time i ordered one ticket to a concert and they sent me six what because because i guess that they it was for a licky lee show at the 9 30 club in dc oh, i remember the show yeah uh yeah and it was an odd show but i got a lot of tickets to it and um, I all I could figure it was from like Ticket Flyer, some you know Ticketmaster, something like that. And all I could figure is I bought them fairly late, and they must have like had there must have the window of been able to deliver them was uh, ending or something. But there's a note that said like enjoy the extra, you know enjoy the extra tickets with friends or something. And I put them on Craigslist and made you know a few hundred dollars. That's amazing. But, yeah, it was great. It was like a free money completely. Um, and I guess they just thought that they weren't going to be able to fill the venue or they hadn't sold out. And so just putting them out in the market somehow or out in the world. Anyway, so that's the only analogous experience I have with that. Yeah, that's I've cool been... with it coming with like, they're not going at it. There's no, I can't think of any similar time crunch or anything for this notebook company unless they just think you're swell. No, I mean, it, it was crazy, especially because like, I mean, at least amongst a certain group of people like field notes, like notebooks are like legit things they're expensive they're not cheap i mean these are tiny notebooks how much are they well uh, for ten dollars you get these three tiny notebooks like that are about the size like about three by five you know like they're pocket notebooks that you put in your back pocket crazy though three for ten dollars yeah but i mean it's it's a bit it's a bit steep for what it is you know and i recognize that but i like the paper it takes ink really well never mind but um (laughs) uh yeah so they're kind of like a thing so it was just like really surprising now i don't know like it could be that they've included this stuff because one of the purchases that i did make was um like i subscribed uh to their like subscription service which is like every quarter they send like kind of like limited edition field notes notebooks um which is like i don't know it's like 80 bucks maybe but like I don't know. It's not that much money to where like it would justify giving me $20 worth of free notebooks. Like that's like pretty crazy. So I don't know, but it was, it was nuts, but it was cool. Fieldnotes.com plus free shipping, 50 bucks over if it's over 50 bucks and no tax if you live outside of Chicago. So it was pretty, it was pretty dope. I'm pretty happy. Yeah. No, as notebooks, as a writer, I'm always, I always feel like I'm having an excuse to buy notebooks. I use them sometimes. 
not as much. I think use them more, yeah. but I, that, they're nice. Yeah, I'm much more. And one of the the cool things, like, told, I can't believe this is turning into like a commercial for Field Notes, which I don't mean it to ever be. And I realize that sometimes. Like, I realize I tell you guys to buy shit a lot, which I don't mean to, but whatever. But one of the um on the the little like cardboard thing that goes around the notebooks. The quote on the back is, I'm not writing it down to remember it later. I'm writing it down to remember it now, which is precisely what I use paper for. I never write things down because I'm taking notes to like refer to later. I write it down because once I write it down, I remember it. So that's kind of how paper works for me, um, and which is why I burn through a lot of notebooks and paper a lot. But yeah, it's pretty cool. cool. So my sort of double rave musing whatever will be about uh i currently i'm looking at my computer i currently have i have the chrome plugin called too many tabs which shows you how many tabs you have open it makes it easier to like sort through them and close them and stuff um and it shows me that i currently have 87 tabs open dude i thought that high. i'm pretty bad because i have like normally probably around 30 i thought that was on the high side 30 is, I'm usually around 30. 87 is definitely above the median for me by a lot. Uh, but that's a lot. My browser's still running fine, which is I'm pretty impressed with. Um, but a lot of how it happened is that I have been um, like on Wikipedia and just like, you know, opening like related articles in a new tab that seem interesting. And it just all piles up and on a Wikipedia binge for reasons that might become clear later. And, and all of that just Reminds me of this thing I used to do, which I recommend people doing if you're just really bored. You can go to play like Wikipedia. I don't even, I don't have a name. I don't have a catchy name for it, but like Wikipedia snake or something, let's say, where you go to hit, you can hit random article Wikipedia and like click through related links to get to some predetermined thing. Like I always used to do it with platypus. It was always my go-to like destination page. And so like, I can try it right now. Let me see what a Wikipedia random page I get is. Um... Random article is Lady Belgate Street in Gloucester. Okay. And so from this, I might click on Gloucester and then click on, I don't know, Great Britain or something. And then find some way to get to Australia and then get to Platypus and find my way through. So I just like, like train of thought things on the internet just amuse me. And they also amuse me in terms of YouTube autoplay, which I accidentally left on on my TV. After I turned off the TV, I had, you know, the Roku YouTube app going. And so I turned on my TV and it was playing, I think I'd watched some Eurovision thing before I turned it off, but it was playing this wonderful performance by the 1979 German representative of Eurovision, who is the band Genghis Khan. I don't know if you're aware of them, Courtney, <laughs> but they are pretty awesome. They were like, I, they started off as like a novelty act in Eurovision called Genghis Khan, performing a song called Genghis Khan about Genghis Khan. And it's tremendous. And it was this other song they did, which I hadn't heard before called Moscow. And they were playing it in front of, singing in German about Moscow uh, to this delighted Russian crowd, or as delighted as Russian crowds get, um, <laughs> in like the Olympic Stadium in Moscow. And I just finished watching this long World War II documentary thing <laughs> on, on Netflix. And so hearing people singing in German about like Moscow, it was all, it was, it was a lot. So I'm going to close up the show with Moscow by James Wow, Collins. that's impressive. It's, I do have actually, I did want to throw out one more rave. Okay. Because I do think it's necessary. I just want to rave about the return of Broad City. Oh, yes, of course. Because the first episode was fantastic. It was so Broad City. I, it was so Broad City. I've rewatched it like three or four times. I still laugh out loud. Um, but the one thing that I will point people to, if you haven't ever watched Broad City or haven't yet 
watched it, but you mean to, is like rewatch the opening sequence, the opening bathroom sequence, like over and over and over again until you decipher every single thing that's happening. Oh, it's so it's approverable. It's so amazing. And as Ben knows, the song that is used in that opening sequence, which is a song called Let Em Say by Lizzo and Caroline Smith, has been my jam for like the last week. And it makes me so happy. Like even thinking about the song makes me happy. And it's a, a song just about like haters and like whatever. And as somebody who sits on the internet and is on Twitter all the time, I'm very much aware of like the song speaks to my soul. Um, you and Nick Kyrgios. Yeah. Me and Nick Kyrgios. But one of the cool things about the the single is that it's actually um, uh, like a charity single. So oh, I didn't know yeah, so if you go to the, their official YouTube, you can find a link um, on Bandcamp where you can download the album and like contribute, you know, donate as much money as you want. But the proceeds uh, go to the uh, Women's Foundation of Minnesota, uh, which is pretty cool. So yeah, it's it's just all all wonderful. I love that this. I, I love Lizzo. I saw her open for Slater Kinney last year uh, at Terminal Five. She's so badass and awesome. And um, and yeah, the song is great. I love that the Broad City girls like found her, like used this song. And I love that the song is actually a charity song that benefits a, uh, a woman's foundation in Minnesota. So all of that. Wonderful. I love the world. Customer service be damned. That is all tremendous. That is that is our like alternate take outro. It's cool. Well, I, you've tweeted that video at least once. So yeah, people can people find can it. find it. I'll, I'll, For sure. I'll, I'll, if you want to, if you can't find it, yeah. just shoot me a note. I'll send it to you. And I'll put it in the I'll put it in the notes here. It's a fun. It's a very like broad city ish video. It's very very kind of like there's a common. It's a common genre video. I don't know what to call that video, but like the walking around the city one take video is kind of in right now. But it's a good execution of that. It's lovely. Um. Yeah. So that is that from Lizzo. Here's Genghis Khan. We'll see you guys <laughs> next week, uh, which will be our last. We'll be in Indian Wells next week. No, wait, one more before Indian Wells. Um, but coming up soon, back together in California. Can't wait. Can't wait. Ben. I'm itchy. Ben and I were talking about the fact that we were a little like, we're a little itchy for the road at the moment. I'm kind of over being home, I have to say. I want to get back on the road. So. Do you want to go to Moscow? The song's going to take you there. Get ready. I'll go to Minnesota instead. <laughs>